0: Good morning again, everyone. Hope that your week has gone well. I'm glad that you were able to join us this morning in whatever format, even those that are joining us by Zoom. I did hop on for a little bit just to see that we do have quite the crowd on Zoom as well this morning. And it kind of runs into some complications for what I want to do right away because what I want to do is have an experiment with you all. So Russ, if you can, if you can zoom out and maybe pan some of the crowd throughout this a little bit as I give some instructions, but what I would like you to do if you so choose to participate is to look around the room and look at one another, really look at one another. You know, if you're, if you're joining us by Zoom, maybe you can look around your living room or whatever format is around you, but you can also, if you're by yourself, you can maybe look at the back of the heads of some people here and, and just kind of, if we can turn around and wave, and Riker was good at that last week. But you know, as you look at some people, you also want to realize you don't want to stare too long, about three seconds, and then it gets kind of awkward, move on to somebody else type of thing, but what was going through your mind as you look at the people that you worship with? What are your thoughts? Are you thinking about how this is awkward? What's he doing? Just smile, get through it. Maybe you're thinking about the ever-important question of what are we going to have for lunch? You know, you think about these things. And you think about the fellowship that we have at this church. It truly is wonderful. And I wonder as we look around the room, what are your thoughts concerning the other people? What do you think of them? What comes to your mind as you see them? You know, dig beyond the surface questions of, well, that's a nice outfit for today. And go to the questions of, How much do I trust this person? What do I really know about this person? Do I know their middle name? That's the standard I use. If you really know somebody, you know their middle name. Now you're thinking, do you know my middle name? (laughs) And you know, sometimes you think subconsciously or consciously. As you look at other people, you begin to measure them up to see where you fall in line, how well you know them, different things about them, for whatever reasons, we make judgments all the time. And this tendency can be a struggle at times, you know, where we try to put people in certain camps or put people in certain labels. And I think that this can happen in a church just as anywhere else. Maybe you're familiar with the scenario of when you enter into a room that's new, a public place maybe, you look for the exits. You look at different people and you say, I need to walk around this person, for whatever reason, safety, maybe they smell weird, maybe they just don't look right. And you walk a little bit further around, why would you do that? So you think about these types of things, and again, as you participated in this little experiment without any knowledge, without any further direction, I'm curious to what your thoughts were. A little bit more directed, you know, thinking of those same people without looking this time to reduce awkwardness. Do you know that person's struggles? Do you know their testimony? Their fears? What encourages their heart? What breaks their heart? How well do we truly know each other? Or how much effort are we putting in to knowing each other? Can we speak into each other's lives? These types of questions begin to help us be concerned with or put others ahead of ourselves. And in a way, it shows humility. Humility is having that modest or low uh, estimate of your own self-importance. And this experiment is just kind of a simple way to look at that, where it can show how we need to be looking outside of ourselves to the concerns and needs of others. As believers, humility is an important quality that we need in our lives. We understand it greatly when it comes to us acknowledging our sin before a holy God. In the Bible, there's almost 90 references with the word humble. Fifty times, it calls on the people to humble themselves or to be humble. Twelve references where God is going to humble people. Four, on how those who do not humble themselves will bring wrath or judgment. Two, dealing with false humility. Three, speaking of Jesus' humility. And nine, speaking about putting on humility as God fears. A lot of instruction in the Bible about this term, about this quality. And to understand these things in our walks, I think we're getting a different picture of humility in our lives when we reference our nation, when we're living in the world that we're living in now. And I think that's a good thing. You know, to understand these things, we're continuing to grow in our humility. And we combine the knowledge of needing to have a servant's heart, as Jesus calls us to have, and to be humble before others And also understanding the humility to admit our sin, to know our guilt before a holy and all-powerful God. So today, we're going to be reading about this important quality for the disciples um, and what Jesus has to say about that. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 9 today. unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes, up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, as we go to your word today, I just pray that you would clear our hearts and minds of distractions that we might have going on in our lives. Lord, things um, going on around us so that we can focus in on your word and your truth as we study Uh, portions of this important principle and quality that we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This isn't working. Mm -mm. There's nothing on the screen is what I mean. It's okay. It'll just be helpful for when I switch later. All right, so we're starting into this longer section of Scripture where Jesus is going to be using smaller portions to teach about salvation. He's going to be discussing how entrance into the kingdom of heaven comes by grace through faith rather than legalistic righteousness. That's going to be touted by the Pharisees. Um, Now, he had just got done saying in that last section that when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? Now he's going to go into a series defining and describing what true faith looks like. And this first quality that he's going to be addressing is humility. And similar to the last section that we just went over, Luke is kind of giving the point ahead of time, uh, before the parable. You know, Jesus is still talking to his disciples and giving them a teaching that, obviously, some are still struggling with. I mean, these are his followers. These are people that are, are beside him, that he is addressing This issue, where they're trusting in their own righteousness or the the fact that they know Jesus or they're following Him around, versus His grace, they're trying to please God in their own way, rather than understanding um, what Jesus came to do, and Jesus is calling them out for it. This is the tone within the passage; it's a warning, it's an admonishment, and it can be harsh. You know, and I think that this is something that we need to be honest with with ourselves with when it comes to humility and this tone how often do we think we're the most humble people in the room many times we hear about principles we hear about qualities given in scripture um, and during sermons or anything like that and we're busy thinking about oh i know who needs to hear this message but they're not here today and oftentimes we don't even look at it for ourselves. You know, I, I've already got this down. I know that Jesus is my Savior, but this person over here, they really need to be humble. And that could be. You know, you could be a pretty humble person. But you know, when when you learn CPR, they teach you when you come up upon a scene to not shout, somebody call 911. Instead, you point to somebody and say, you call 911. Because in the In the traumatic moment, if somebody hears somebody, call 911, everybody's going to assume, well, somebody else will do it. Whereas when you're very specific and you point to somebody, it gets their attention. See, it's common to think that just because Jesus taught this to some who thought this way, that we can believe that Jesus is talking to others and not us specifically or not you specifically. But this lesson should hit home first, because I am someone. Am I trusting in my own righteousness? Am I looking down on others? Because the principle that we need to understand is that our opinions of ourselves reflect who we think God is, who's really in charge in our minds. Within Jesus' own disciples, there are people who are struggling with this attitude. And he wanted to address it. They trusted in their own righteousness. They treated others with contempt, as the word says. Contempt is really just disregarding, disrespecting others. It's looking down on people with scorn. And he tells them this parable, contrasting a tax collector and a Pharisee. Now, Jesus has been kind of hard on the Pharisees so far, so that wouldn't be too odd in what he is doing and what he is addressing. But this contrast where he's elevating the tax collector, that would cause some waves. That would be kind of shocking to his audience. It would be a bold statement. and It would challenge their preconceived notions, how they viewed society and these professions. It would be similar if I were to to say, you know, let's take it to our terms and our time and replace Pharisee with a John MacArthur or a John Piper or a Francis Chan, a church leader, somebody that's kind of respected within the religious community, and replace the tax collector with someone who's struggling with homosexuality, somebody who's had three children out of wedlock or some abortions. Again, putting it into our cultural context. What would people say? What would people in the church think about those people? Would they have contempt? Would they look down on others? Would they have disdain with somebody who struggles with homosexuality and yet says that they are a Christian? Would you doubt in your heart and mind that they're being honest or truthful? Would you say that they can't be a Christian because of that sin? Are we in the business of weighing sins? Which sins are acceptable in a church? Does this conversation make you uncomfortable? It should, a little bit. Now, before I get phone calls tomorrow, I'm not condoning this lifestyle, obviously, but simply pointing out how we may view others whose sins are a little bit more public than our own. How we might view people as being less than. Because this is how the Jews viewed tax collectors. Even if that tax collector was a Jew. And Jesus is painting this verbal picture here to stir up their minds of the people to identify this deeper contrast to those who are rejecting the gospel with self-righteousness, to those who are receiving it with humility. And here in the opening of this parable, Jesus says both men are going up to pray. Both men are sincere. Both men are devout. One keeps the law faithfully um, or carefully. He's trying to be doing it in a thorough way. At least he thinks that he is. The other is in a profession where dishonesty and extortion and, and cheating are the norm. And he stays near the back. The Pharisee, in the way that he is being described, kind of represents how Matthew describes um, the, the praying hypocrite in Matthew chapter six, where he says, "And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen." By others. He thinks highly of himself. He's comparing himself to all of these other people. He figures, well, I'm better than all of them. I have to come out on top. And even though this is a prayer, it's not really a prayer because he's just kind of talking about himself. He's only um, talking about and reviewing his own self righteousness. He's telling God who's superior, who's better. His standard is that he is better than others, so he has to have favor with God. And as you look at verse 11, he's listing off people that, you know, would be outcasts, people that would be looked down upon, and he just happens to pick out the person that is in the room with him, you know, and that, that tax collector over there. You know, the tax collector did nothing to provoke this acknowledgement, um, but it does show that the tax collector would be known by the Pharisee. He would have to know who he is. He would have to know that he is a tax collector and that his, that's his profession. And he's comparing himself to this person that he is worshiping God with. What he is doing here would be similar to if in my prayer times I said something like, thank God I'm not like a person who struggles with this and you fill in the sin that you're struggling with that you know that I know that you know that I know, what would that make you feel like? You know, pointing out, emphasizing how I'm just glad I'm not guilty of that sin. And this is kind of the picture of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, right? Jesus is teaching the people about right interpretations of scriptures. Like, okay, you say you're not an adulterer, but I say if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her. Okay, you say you haven't murdered anybody, great. But I say if you've even hated somebody in your heart, it's the same as killing them, the same as murdering them. You know, sin is sin. It makes you equally guilty and unqualified. There's not a weight in terms of sin in God's eyes, it's all punishable by death. In our eyes, some sins might be more reprehensible than others. Some might hold some higher consequences than others. But, you know, it's important for us to understand that we cannot get high and mighty like this Pharisee with which sins are acceptable or not because we give an opinion of ourselves that reflect who we think God is. We show our pride in our own righteousness when we're comparing ourselves to others. So this Pharisee, he shows disdain for certain groups of people. And then he boasts a little bit more about himself, how he fasts twice a week. Well, all the good Pharisees did that, usually on Tuesdays and Thursdays. He mentions how, he, how he's a good tither. You know, he tithes from everything that he gives Once again, make it very public right out there so everybody can see what he's doing. By his own merits, by his own standards, he's assessing himself to be pretty good. This is the attitude that Jesus is calling out where the alternative to believing on him is to believe and trust in your own righteousness. Where you're judging others by by their actions and yourself by your intentions. As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Have you, ever, have you ever yelled at your kids for doing something and they put it right back at you? Like, well, dad, you're doing it right now. Okay. Then you have that famous quote, well, do as I say, not as I do type of thing. How quickly we throw the authority card when we're called out for doing something that we're yelling at others for. You know, any anytime that we're trusting in our own righteousness to find acceptance with God, we're elevating ourselves at the expense of others because we're comparing ourselves to others and we're looking down on them. When in reality, as I said, all sin is punishable by death. We're all on equal footing. We'll get to that a little bit more later here. The Pharisee is doing all these things to gain approval. But what does the Scriptures say about this type of attitude? I've given you a little bit in terms of how often the Bible talks about humility, but now I want to take a walk through some passages uh, to look at a few of these verses that perhaps the Pharisee would be overlooking. And the first is Isaiah 58 Verses 1 through 12, if you want to turn there with me. I don't have this one up because it's a longer portion. So keep, a, keep your bulletin in Luke 18. We'll be back there in a little bit. But Isaiah 58. Kind of the focal points, are, I think, are like around verses 4 or 5-ish. But we're going to read some of this greater context here. <clears throat> Verse 1 Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. We have fasted and you see it not. And to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast? And a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him. And speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be re- rebuilt And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. We'll stop there. But you see here what Israel was doing. They would try to fast, they would try to seek to do the Lord's ways, to delight in Him daily, but they did it for their own selfish pleasures. There was still oppression, there was still wickedness, there were still hungry people in their community that the Jews were overlooking. They were not doing what the Lord called them to do. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Multiple times this type of thing is repeated in Scripture, this type of teaching We find it in the Psalms. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I had originally looked at, again, just reading a few of these verses, but you can't really skip through 14. I mean, once you get that close to it, you always have to read it because it's so powerful. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to begin in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Through all of these, we see the heart of God, we see what he desires. And this concept should be known to the Pharisee, who is supposed to be a student of the Word. This concept should be known to those disciples that are following Jesus as they are learning from him, as they have studied the Word. Jesus is pushing them to understand the plan and the will of God, which will include his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, where they are to trust God and not themselves. Now, to bring this point home, if you flip back to Luke 18, he then contrasts what's going on with this Pharisee with the tax collector. We see this by the word but. It's a transition word that makes it very known of this contrast. We can notice the contrast right away when we see how the tax collector is staying far off, how he doesn't want to look towards heaven because of his own unworthiness before a holy God. He beats his chest asking for mercy. Now, The act of beating your chest is a form of contrition, saying you're sorry, saying that you are sinful. And he makes a request to God for mercy. Rather than telling God about what he has done and who he is and how he's better than other people, he makes a request for mercy. He calls himself a sinner. He knows his errors. He knows that he is not worthy. And he comes humbly before God. What does Jesus say? He says that the tax collector goes down justified rather than the other one who is not. And as Jesus finishes this parable, he repeats the teaching that he, he gave in chapter 14, verse 11 with the, the wedding feast. As he says, you know, those who are exalting themselves will be humbled, but whoever humbles themselves Will be exalted. This teaching would cause huge waves in the minds of those who hear it, because it would be very unfair to this people that this man of such exemplary behavior is not being justified, while the person with questionable career choices is. But this points the audience, and then us as the readers, To the point that it's not about our works, but that it's about the mercy and grace of God. We are called to humble ourselves, not to harden ourselves. Through the revelation of God, we need to recognize our own sinfulness and our need for God. The tax collector had a sense of his own worthiness and his need for God's grace. Paul talks about this beautifully in the book of Romans. Go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 3. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For you hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Again, a rich portion of Scripture there that helps us in our understanding of the justification that we have through Christ. Paul then goes on in chapter 4 to explain how Abraham um, was considered righteous by his faith. You know, Jesus, he's attacking this mentality that plagued some of his disciples that were in front of him. And his words continue to attack mentalities that can plague us today. And I think that this is an important message for us to hear. Because we too can fall into these traps to think, you know, I'm better than another person. Or that I don't need to hear this type of message. That we have this squared away in our life. But you know, pride continues to attack us. Pride continues to creep in to where we think more of ourselves than we ought And as I said in the opening, if you think that the sum that is talked about here in this passage is always talking about someone else, it may suggest you're the exact type of person that needs to hear this message. Many times when we read a passage like this, we identify ourselves with the tax collector. You know, anytime we're reading other passages or maybe we're reading books or watching movies, we identify ourselves with, you know, the main character, the main good person even if they go through some hard times, we always come out on top. How often do we identify ourselves with the Pharisee? We forget this contrast that's set up. This is a parable that's told with an explicit purpose to attack mentality of Jesus' followers, his disciples that are struggling with this. We can easily get trapped by this mentality that says I'm the most humble person the room or that it's always someone else's fault playing the victim card everybody can sit in a church and say that they're humble on a sunday but how do you live the rest of the week we need to be reminded frequently to not be trusting in ourselves that the hope we have the strength that we have comes from christ alone our justification comes from him from his word from his power You know, humility starts with our relationship with God. Where we're trusting in his mercy and grace for salvation. You know, we hear the gospel message. We realize that we're not righteous and we cannot justify ourselves. Where we sit in the least honorable position at the table. Where we recognize our unworthiness as sinners. And we're dependent upon his grace. We read the Bible. We see the promises. We see how we're changed by the gospel. Changed by the Spirit. You know, everything that happens to our life, in our life as believers, regarding salvation, you know, justification, sanctification, regeneration, all the big Christianese types of terms, all of these things happen to show how God is working in us and what he has done for us. It's not an expression of our own power, of our own talents, of our own might. It's God in us. A life full of Him, to carry out His will as the word describes, to be His ambassadors, something that carries it over to the lost in our communities, in our world, to where, as we talked about in Sunday school yet again, to where they would recognize us by our love. And we continue this life of humility before others, and we don't get a big head because we're Christians because we belong to a certain denomination, because we believe in certain theologies. We don't get a big head about those things thinking we're better than these lost people. Instead, we have a realistic picture that we're all equally guilty, and it is only by the grace of God that we are saved. It's nothing about us. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no man shall boast. We should be the people who have understood grace the most and live in the freedom that Christ brings through the Spirit. From our understanding of our relationship with God and how he has sent Jesus as the bridge, we see Jesus in that perfect picture of humility as he comes and takes on the form of a servant. And then to his followers, he says, you go, you you serve, you be a servant. You have a servant's heart now. To where God uses us as the bridge with the gospel message, taking those words of life, taking those words of salvation to a lost and hurting world. Where we take that gospel message with us. Where we build those bridges with people that have enmity with God. Where we need to see people the way that God sees them. Not as a way to compare ourselves to them, to, to lower them, to Look at them with contempt or disdain, but rather seeing them as broken as we once were. Understanding the gospel message and the healing that comes from that. That we have the words of life. That we can speak to those who are dead. Again, not in a way of arrogance, not in a way that is better than, but in a way of humility. The Lord says multiple times in Scripture, humble yourself before the Lord. Follow in his ways rather than your own. And then you shall be exalted. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would humble me. Lord, you know the areas in my life where I am being ignorant and arrogant. You know the the areas in my life full well. You know the sin. You know the things that may not be in the public eye for all of us, Lord. Lord, whatever we do for you, help us to keep a humble outlook on it. Help us to understand your kingdom and the times of rejoicing, the times of exaltation, the times of glorification. Lord, give us that freedom of spirit that can live in a way that shows others that you are real, that you are true, and that you are the way of salvation. Lord, the world around us puts its hope in so many different things, whether it's our own strength, whether it's our government, whether it's false religions. There's a lot of mess out there, Lord. And at times we can get down and think that there's no way that we can change things. And part of that's true. Because we cannot do it in our own power. But Lord, thankfully, we have you inside of us. We have your spirit that goes with us, that guides us. And I just pray that we would humbly obey and do your will. Lord, so many times We pray things in Scripture and we forget the humility aspect of it. We want our nation healed. But Lord, the first part of that verse calls for repentance. We skip right over that. Lord, I pray that you would humble our nation I pray that you would bring us to our knees. And that's not an easy prayer. But we need it. Lord, you, you sent your own people into exile. Do we think that we are any better? Do we think that we deserve more? Because we're American? Arrogance, Lord. Pride. Lord, I pray that you would humble me. I pray that you would work in the humility of my brothers and sisters, that we would continue to unite around you, understanding that it's all about you. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I continue to pray for opportunities to take your gospel to those that that I would come in contact with this week. I pray specifically for my neighbors. I pray specifically for my brother. Lord, continue to soften hearts. Continue to allow us to stay focused, to do your will until you call us home or until you come for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.